from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Alberto Aranaza is the co-founder of Transcend Network, the first global network supporting founders who are building the future of learning and work. Previously, he was a part of the inaugural class at Minerva Schools, now known as Minerva University, which took him on a journey through six different countries where he spent time exploring projects in venture capital and startups and economic development and education. Alberto has a unique perspective into the trends of early stage companies, which is why I was so excited to have him on the podcast today. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today, Alberto. Yeah, thank you, Garrett. I'm really excited. So let's start the way I'd like to start our, all these conversations, which is tell us about your story. What brought you to the field of education? What made you care about this industry? And then jump into some of the work you're doing with Transcend at the end. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think the focus on caring about education is really important because I think a lot of people don't necessarily work in education for a really long time, uh, but they always sort of carry that interest or that passion. Um, I actually think for me, it wasn't something that I knew from an early age that I, I wanted to do. So I'm joining today from Madrid in Spain, which is where, where I'm from. Um, so I grew up here in the city. Um, I wouldn't say I was particularly interested in education uh, growing up. I I don't think I was particularly curious uh, anyways, which is kind of weird. Um, I was really focused on playing basketball at an early age, so um, I was really passionate about that. Um, people can't usually tell on podcasts or on Zoom, but I'm, I'm pretty tall. You're so. super tall. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, all right. Um, yeah, so I, I, I grew up playing basketball, um, which is pretty big in Spain. Um, and when I was about 17, I, I had this one experience in my life where um, I had a heart condition. I don't usually talk about this in podcasts, uh, but I guess we went there. Uh, I had a heart condition that I was diagnosed with. Um, and so I had to stop playing basketball. And that was a big sort of shakeup uh, in, in my identity and sort of who, what I, I knew that I could do. And um, all of a sudden, the thing that I felt most comfortable and more certain about um, sort of fell through. So I couldn't play basketball anymore. I think there was, there was a couple of years of sort of rethinking who I was and uh, what I felt comfortable doing. And um, and I think in that process, um, there was a lot of change and a lot of growth. And so I think that's when something changed in my mind that I started getting really excited about education. And so I went to study in Scotland um, at the University of Glasgow and somehow learned about this new university that was just getting started and looking for its first class of students uh, called Minerva. Um, at the time it was called Minerva Schools. Now it's called Minerva University because it's fully credited now. And uh, yeah, so I joined. Um, I was in the first graduating class. So that was quite an experience. Um, I showed up there in San Francisco feeling massive imposter syndrome. Um, because I was the only Spaniard. I, I felt really self-conscious about my Spanish accent. The only one in general? Uh, in the whole program, the only Spaniard? Yeah, I mean, for the first year. Um, yeah, so oh, wow. the okay. first couple of years, I think. Uh, Representing was, a whole country. country. <laughs> <Yeah>. No pressure. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think uh, there was just so many things that I felt like, oh, uh, I don't have any sort of certain uh, kind of 
foundations to fall back on. I, I don't have one thing that I'm really good at that everybody sort of recognizes and uh, respects me for. It was like, oh, I'm, I just have to learn really quickly. And I have to learn uh, from all these wonderful people. So I think Minerva was really transformational for me in that it really sort of taught me to be comfortable with being the dumbest person in the room. Uh, and I was <laughs> all the time. Uh, so Minerva is, is a really interesting new university for those who don't know about it. Uh, you basically do your uh, university degree um, in four years over seven different cities of the world. Um, it's got a really interesting pedagogy where the first year is all focused on habits and concepts that are fundamentally interdisciplinary and that you can apply to um, whatever you're studying or whatever you're doing at work. Um, and it's really focused on sort of going into the cities, building new projects and um, kind of applying that to your learning. Um, so because we were the very first graduating class, I, I we had to build a lot of stuff. So uh, I got together with a group of friends and we started the student government. We we did a lot of initiatives in with the students. And um, I think that was really the best environment for me where I think this sort of passion for learning and growing really, really took off. So towards the end of my time at Minerva, I started thinking about what I wanted to do after um, after Minerva. And obviously education was very present at the time because I'd just been thinking about it for, for four years and, and really kind of embodying it and playing playing with, with real models. So um, I think there was just one very specific problem that I kept um, kind of running into when I thought about the future of education. And it was the, the very local nature of education when we think about its recent history. Um, when, when you think about uh, people going out and building a school or building a company in the education technology space, they tended to be kind of founded with other local folks uh, addressing a local need, um, often funded locally. And to me, the biggest change in education wasn't necessarily automation or artificial intelligence uh, just yet, uh, or blockchain. Um, but it was that education was going global and that you were able, you're now able to spin up a Discord and bring in a bunch of engineers and teach them the new kind of a new framework or a new uh, language or a new skill um, and, and really teach anybody anywhere in the world. So I, I think uh, through Minerva, I got to see that um, and it felt like this new change, it, this, this change in how founders were building education um, was not reflected in how they were supported at the early stages. So there's a bunch of funds, a bunch of accelerators, incubators, but they're all operating so locally, right? So the, kind of the idea that we started uh, Transcend Network with, which is the company that I run right now, was what would it look like to have a global community of founders building the future of education and the future of work where they support each other, but we also sort of funnel resources, connections, um, sort of trends and analysis um, to them uh, at the very, very early stages. So that's kind of how Transcend uh, came about. Um, and we've been running it for two years now. Um, we run mostly founder fellowships. So this is, um, we kind of have one for seed stage founders. We have a new one that's for idea stage founders. So these are basically aspiring aspiring founders. Um, and we're building new programs um, every day. So I'm sure we'll get to talk more about it, but that's, that's sort of how I ended up here. Awesome. 
let's jump into your experience with Minerva. So I know you said it was very formative. It was transformative for your life. How did it prepare you specifically for this journey you're embarking on in, in entrepreneurship? So I think uh, there was a very important part of Minerva to me, which was, uh, and I already mentioned it when I, when I first spoke about it, but it's the, the other students in the classroom. So there are folks from, I think it was like 40 countries in, in my first class. And um, it was so diverse from a passport perspective, but also from um, just the things people were interested in, the, their skills, their interests. Um, that, that was really formative for me because if you're kind of you make friends in your university uh, and they're come from the same local background you have so many references so many local kind of so many share cultural references that it, it's a lot easier to get started and, and build a relationship when you're talking to somebody from Nigeria and uh, somebody else from Argentina and somebody from Russia it's like it, it's just so hard to to have that shared kind of language cultural language and so you have to really rethink the way that you think about friendship, the way you think about um, collaboration. There's just so many things that you need to um, think about in a completely new light. Um, and so I think that really prepared me for uh, well, one COVID because uh, all of our classes were online, right? So so when kind of March 2020 came around and um, the. Uh, I guess uh, the U.S. and Europe and most of the world went into lockdowns. Um, I had been doing that for for five years. I had done Zoom University for five years before, um, so that was kind of a very clear thing that I I was prepared to do, but when building a global community, there's just so many things that you can't assume. You can't assume that everybody's going to be caring about the same things. You can't assume that everybody's going to um, speak about certain things in the same way. You might say something um, and assume that everybody got exactly what you uh, what you said, uh, but it might be interpreted in twenty different ways, and you just have to be really aware of it. There's no, there's no silver bullet for that cultural diversity. It's just something you need to be aware of. So I think that was something that was really present through my Minerva, my Minerva days. Um, I would say that the traveling component also taught me to sort of learn really quickly how to adapt to to new cities and new environments so um i think in a lot of the cities i was a bit of a kind of i would just kind of go my own way and meet new people and try to kind of read the local newspapers until i understood what was going on in that country and those were really formative experiences that i think as a founder it's it's like that but multiplied by a hundred right like you have any challenge you have to learn everything there's to know about this thing with such level of, of detail um, and then move on to the next thing. So I think there was a, an aspect of like a, a bit of a growth mindset there that I, I think I learned through Minerva as well. So those are some of the things that kind of come to mind. So you said you were in another university before Minerva and then you transferred in or did you come in? Was that your first university experience? So I, I transferred in, um, but at Minerva, you basically had to start over. So I did my first year at this uh, this university in in Glasgow, um, which was founded in, I believe, the 1450s. So this is a, a university that's 500 years old plus. Um, Traditional doesn't even start to explain. Exactly, sure. <laughs> it's uh, it looks like Howard's. Uh, the, the campus is is beautiful, but um, but yeah, very very different. So, so you ha you have a unique perspective then you can compare and contrast a traditional university and i'm sure it was well regarded and and 
people assumed it was it was great um, but then you got to run to this very progressive environment so how can you compare and contrast I know we've touched on a little bit but um, did you see those same skills of being open-minded and, and problem solving for yourself developing in that first year program or was that really just a light bulb that switched when you were put in the, the Minerva pedagogy it's such a such a big question uh, I could uh, kind of take on this question from so many different angles um, it was definitely a, a radically different experience. Um, I think I, there are people that thrive in the more traditional, uh, bigger school um, where the academics are generally a bigger part of the experience and where everything else is sort of like, left, you're left to your own devices, kind of like go figure out how to make friends, go figure out how to learn that cultural exposure. Uh, but in reality, most people don't figure that out. There's some people who thrive in there in that environment. I, I learned pretty quickly that um, that wasn't for me and that I wanted to be in, the, in, in this kind of very early stage new university place where like n nothing is established you have to go out and like basically build everything that, that you want to see happen um i would say one huge difference that i i identified was at glasgow uh and in any traditional university the incentive structures are completely different right the the, in, the institutions uh, are funded very differently they are they spend their money very differently, right? So I remember looking into their the financial statements of, of the university, which were um, kind of open to the public. And I believe it was around 60% or even closer to 70% of the total spending of the university in a given year that was related to the, the physical buildings. It was either oh, wow. uh, yeah. like <laughs> kind of paying for like, I don't know, electricity or uh, staff that, that is in those buildings or, um, actually running stuff in those places. Um, it's obviously a, a revenue generator as well in, in other ways, but th that's something that Minerva didn't have. So that was a very clear uh, difference. In, in Minerva, you go into different cities and, and there's really just a residence um, for, for you, but there's no campus, there's no lecture halls. Um, so that has its disadvantages, of course, but I think overall for me, it was, it was a lot better. Um, but I think the main difference really was at, um, at a more traditional university experience, there's the academics and then there's everything else that you need to go out and figure out on your own. Um, I learned pretty quickly, I was not gonna get too much out of the academics if I just focused on that. The, the, the real value for me was gonna come from joining the clubs and societies um, after school. So I went out, it, it was just, I went crazy. I signed up to so many clubs uh, and so many activities every day. I would probably have like- I think that's true of most universities. I yeah, know, yeah. I so I, generally true. I, I signed up for like basically two events every day or something like that. Um, I signed up to so many clubs. I joined two different tea societies <laughs> in, in Glasgow. This is like, there, there, was, there was more than one in, in this university so I felt like that was where I was learning the most and where I was channeling kind of most of my energy and I think at Minerva there was an interesting kind of push to to put that more at the center and say look if you're really putting yourself out there uh, that should be a part of the uh, a, a part of the academic experience um, I think Minerva still has some some um, room for improvement there in that it could integrate that even more um, I know they've been trying to improve this um, in the years after I graduated. Um, but I feel like it could be even a bigger part of the experience. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the, 
differences are endless. Um, but I think for me, eventually, ultimately, it was the right decision. Um, and I think also, if Minerva, if I were enrolling in Minerva now, um, with six or seven uh, classes that are already enrolled, I think I would benefit less than I did at, at the time. I, I think there was a lot of value for me in joining in the very first, the very first class. That's great. Thank you for your perspective and your story. Um, let's go into what you're doing currently with Transcend Network. So could you super quickly tell the audience what is the mission of the Transcend Network? Yeah, so Transcend Network is really focused on basically supporting early stage founders um, in education and future of work. So we help them from idea to um, kind of the seed stage roughly. We're trying to extend that with new programs, but we we have this, we're in this global community of um, founders that are um, kind of building in some way a project in the space, um, but that it's also incorporating a global perspective. So we have founders from 35 countries. Uh, we've graduated about 120 fellows from, from this fellowship, which is our main program. Um, and now we have this new program that we launched this summer called Exploration Lab, which is focused on basically aspiring founders. So we help um, people that might be full-time teachers or engineers or whatever they might be doing um, kind of go out and validate a, an actual startup idea in the future of learning and the future of work. Um, and we'll be building new programs next year to support founders after that seed stage. To talk about the fellowship, which is the kind of the main program we've been running, um, as of 30 minutes ago, we just closed our sixth uh, fellowship cohort, um, which is uh, really exciting and a little bit sad. But um, but yeah, we th that program is really focused on kind of bringing founders together. Um, this sounds like a bit of a cliche, but when you're building such a global community, you end up learning that the founder in Singapore and the founder in Argentina and the founder in France they're actually facing really similar problems because th their solutions are looking a lot more similar than they did maybe 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, they were probably all building a product that would get distributed through schools. And so they needed to incorporate those lo local nuances into the, the, the companies. Now they're all building online first learning experiences. And it's a there's a lot more that they can learn from each other than I think most people realize. So we take that community building really seriously. And I think anybody who's gone through Transcend will tell you that we probably spend most of our time trying to build that sense of vulnerability and peer support in our in our fellowship. But then we also really focus on product market fit. Um, so a lot of the founders that come through are, they, they usually have a team, they might have gotten a little bit of funding, but they're not 100% sure that they found product market fit. So they need a little bit of accountability, a little bit of direction, and um, we we sort of help them with that. So running uh, weekly experiments, making sure that they're measuring um, the, uh, the, the user experience and seeing asking their asking their customers if they're um, really kind of finding an experience that is sort of lights their eyes uh, up, right? And so um, I think I would say that's the main benefit that, that founders um, kind of come for. Um, and they've been doing great. They've gone on to raise about $70 million after the fellowship. So it's uh, it's really exciting work. And um, 
yeah, our team has been growing as well. So we started about two years ago, and really until the start of the year, um, it was me and my co-founder and um, one more person that was very part-time. And now we have a team of seven. Um, some of them are full-time, some are part-time. But uh, yeah, we're starting to grow the program operations and uh, starting to focus on new challenges. So I think the next frontier for us is starting to invest in, in some of the founders that go through the fellowship. So um, that's something we'll be talking about more um, in the coming weeks. Uh, but we have some really exciting updates on, on that front as well. Um, so that's a, at a high level what what Transcend does. So you said there's this trend to direct-to-learner companies, people who aren't necessarily trying to reform their local school system, but are creating these these global, especially online first direct, direct-to-learner um, companies. So is that something that you're filtering for? Are you actively seeking out or, or selecting those companies? Or is that just generally where the talent is deciding to spend their time nowadays? So I, I would say we definitely filter for companies that are building either for a global audience or building on a global trend. I wouldn't say we necessarily filter for direct-to-learner. So we still uh, work with a lot of B2B companies um, or, or K-12 companies, but we we really prioritize that they're building on a global trend because that's kind of, at a high level, that's what we, you know, when we started Transcend, we sort of sat down and, and tried to really zoom out and say, okay, there's all these trends going on in the world, but which ones, which are, which are the ones that are really um, kind of shaping up globally? If you look at, uh, for example, U.S. higher ed, I think uh, there's there's such a unique higher ed system in in the U.S. that has created very unique challenges around student debt. Uh, th- those are problems that are very uh, they're very uh, common in other parts of of the world, just not to the extent of the U.S. I would say in the U.S. it's extremely um, uh, I don't know uh, it's just a really really big problem. So. We tried to sort of sit down and we did this exercise we call the um, the open thesis. So we basically came up with eight trends that we saw kind of taking uh, taking place globally, and uh, each one of them we basically kind of write about them. We have an ocean page on our website that um, is called uh, the open thesis, and uh, these open thesis basically uh, set an ocean. We update them uh, pretty frequently, and uh, we. Whenever a founder comes in and applies to the, our fellowship, we try to see if there's a fit with one of these uh, theses so that when they join, we tell them, welcome, Garrett, we see you building on this trend. These are some people that have built in it uh, before. These are some of the trends that we're seeing. And so that helps us kind of guide the, the work that we're doing a little bit more. Um, so that's generally... Well, let's double click on that. What, what is the open thesis? <laughs> You've intrigued me. Let's see if you can rattle them off if it's top of mind. Yeah, so uh, the, we have... Eight of them, right? So uh, some of them are focusing kind of uh, they're closer to your world. So uh, we have one that is probably the most active one for us, which is uh, about learning communities and sort of how a lot of the kind of the really interesting learning experiences are fundamentally just about communities. And we're starting to kind of recenter around um, communities as the main place for learning. Um, but some others are in uh, upskilling at work. They're about universities um, kind of transforming more into a platform for higher education, kind of unbundle higher education uh, models. Um, we have another one about uh, global hiring and how all of a sudden, I guess we've, we've been thinking a lot about how work is going remote, but we've been thinking very little about kind of how th- th- this world actually enables us to 
hire without knowing the credentials of a, an Indian software developer or a, a Filipino um, market uh, marketer, right? Like all of a sudden we have all these credentials that we don't understand. And because we don't understand them, they lose value. And so uh, I, I think that's, that's a really exciting trend um, in terms of economic empowerment. Um, we have one about uh, work going remote and requiring a very different type of experiences and very different types of tools. We have another one around um, how kind of K-12 is moving away from kind of distribution first and more into learning first. Um, uh, John Danner talks about it uh, as first class users, right? Uh, I think there's a lot uh, going on in that world and it's something I'm, you know a lot more than I do, uh, but sort of focusing on the learner first. Um, we have uh, another one around educator tools um, and sort of building for educators first. And the last one is new vocational pathways. So. When you think about how, um, why a lot of people go to college these days is uh, to get a job, and there's often a lot more efficient ways to get a job. And I think vocational training and vocational pathways have sort of lost uh, a, a lot of their prestige in the last couple of decades. But I think we're now kind of realizing that um, a lot of these these models are really interesting. And whether they're apprenticeships or they're boot camps, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of global trends around um, how to basically get people into jobs as quick as possible and as efficiently, uh, effectively as possible. Um, so that's the that's the last one um, that that we see uh, globally. Um, so, so which of these seems most popular with the people applying to your fellowship or your network? Is it um, is it heavily skewed towards one or another, and a, and a couple are more forgotten? And the reason I ask is because I think a lot of people who are technology or, or venture capital adjacent, at least, know that. A lot of funding goes towards very visible problems, especially problems visible to middle class or or higher type people. Um, but that doesn't mean other problems aren't important as well. So there's a natural uh, grouping of interests around. I mean, the absurd examples are, you know, providing lunches for people for technology workers at offices, right? It's like there's been six companies because that's that's the problem people who know how to build technology understand. But th- we have to take a more holistic view that there are a whole lot of problems plaguing, especially our learners, our teachers, and and these these communities that get overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of uh, break down this question into two. Um, the, the the first one would be. What are the kind of the most common trends? I would say the number one thesis by activity, and and we sort of have this notion with a lot of relational databases going on there. But the one the, the one that's most populated is uh, learning through communities. Um, this is a very sort of it's a very transversal one, uh, I guess. Um, it, it's very common in other sectors, right? So um, we think a lot about this as our own kind of as our own playbook, as we build our own playbook for how to run this these programs. And our approach to the fellowship is you're coming in with all these ideas of what you want to learn as a founder, all the things that you want to grow and kind of all your goals as a business. Uh, but the very first sessions are all about the people um, kind of getting to know each other. So very kind of very quickly they realize we're we're here to, to to put our guard down and really talk kind of human to human. And once we have that human connection uh, and, and a sense shared of, of purpose and why we're doing this work, um, then we can go on to learn together 
together and, and build something together, right? Um, one really interesting exercise we do uh, is we ask founders uh, to to share why uh, what it means to them to be a founder in one word. A lot of the words are uh, sacrifice, hustle, pain, um, and when you ask them what it means to them to be a founder in the future of learning, in the future of work, the, the descriptions are a lot more exciting, a lot more aspirational. So they, they'll say impact, they'll say um, supporting, uh, they'll say um, dreams. It, it, it's really, really inspirational, I would say. So we really try to put that front and center of our fellowship. And we think that this this is going on uh, in a lot of other trends. A lot of other people that are, are building uh, learning experiences are putting community experiences at the center. And then sort of, once you get to that point that you can uh, move on. So that would be the most um, the most popular one, I, I, I would say. And to date, I would say this is like still to me the biggest trend going on in education uh, right now. Like um, kind of moving away from here's the content you need to learn to here's a group of people that all want to learn similar things now go like learn something together i don't really care what it is that you learn right um so i, I would say that's still to me the biggest uh trend going on in in this space um now to answer the question of which trends get uh more resources and more perhaps noise and hype or which ones would you wish more people would focus on right um so that's for for the trends i I think naturally there are a few problems that get a lot of attention in every industry especially in venture capital is involved but what are the problems that's like hey yeah this is still a huge problem it may not be as sexy or whatever but this is a huge problem and not many people seem to want to address it so from your perspective what are those things i think the the disconnect usually happens when the user is not the the buyer, right? And when when you can't assume that the person that you're designing for is going to be able to scale their satisfaction with a kind of a payment, um, and so I often I would say kind of learners being. I mean, any student of any institution, um, it's really hard for any founder to build for them and have them as their, this is one of the main reasons why startups in the space fail. It's because they're they're designing for a persona that actually has no say on the on the purchase decision. Um, so that's, that's a pretty clear one. I would say building for educators is a very clear one as well. Um, there's, there's very little incentive for the founders to, to do that. Um, and it's just a lot easier to go out, build something for a learning and development, um, kind of manager, right? Cause you know that the, that's the person that, that they're probably not even doing the learning courses or, or whatever you're selling them themselves. They're just kind of checking the boxes and then, um, deciding if they, if they buy the product or not so I, I would say that's how that's the high level sort of um, kind of mental model that, that I see and so that ends up leave, leaving learners and educators out for the most part um, I think it's interesting for example that tutoring is like such a massive um, such a massive um, industry um, but when you actually look at how those resources are distributed within the tutoring world, like uh, it's very clear that the people who need it most are not getting uh, are not getting it right. So um, I think there's really exciting projects in this space, like um, Schoolhouse. I don't know if you've come across their their work, but um, it uh, I, I think they're doing really important work in bringing some of this leading technology and um, 
and, and resources and and people that want to support uh, other learners to to the masses. And I think that's that's really important. And I think we need uh, not only do we need more founders that have that sense of of impact, we need a lot more resources for them to go out and build it. Um, I think it's great that uh, venture capital has roughly doubled. It's projected to double in twenty twenty one. Compared to 2019, that's a crazy. That's a crazy number, um, but I think that's good. I think overall, like, there's a lot of problems in education that require venture capital funding. I think there's a lot of problems that don't, and and they're not going to get solved by venture-backed companies. Um, so one of my goals with with Transcend is to eventually be able to support um, kind of the world in, in figuring out what some sort of more patient capital looks like for um, f- for founders in the space that sort of sits somewhere in between you know, venture funding that has very clear financial returns and, expect- and expectations, but also grant money, which... Um, it's really hard to to scale that, right? So, um, whether something in between that is a little bit more patient, but still might want some returns, um, look like that's I think something that's going to be really important. Do you have a hypothesis? Do you, where, what do you think that attack vector is? No, I don't know if I have one, but <laughs> do you, do you have any idea of what that more patient capital would look like outside of just increasing the the size and scope of, of government activity? I think actually governments will play a big role, uh, not necessarily in. Um, often running those programs themselves, but in actually funding it. So I think a, a really interesting example that comes to mind is the UK. Um, about five years ago, they passed this this new project called the Apprenticeship Levy, where basically um, all employers that uh, earn above a, a certain uh, amount of revenue, they have to put 0.5% of their um, of their uh, payroll, um, total payroll uh, mass in into a digital wallet. So th- that money is locked up there. It looks like a tax, right? Because it's kind of taking away from their uh, from their uh, revenue. But that money gets locked up there and can only be used for for training. And specifically, it's used for apprenticeships. So you're encouraged to go out and find a uh, an apprenticeship provider, and these are uh, approved by the government. Um, so you're you're incentivized to go out find one of these uh, organizations and take on new students that are perhaps um, studying at university, but most likely they're, they're just sitting at home. They're they might be an 18 year old that doesn't want to go to college or might be somebody else. Um, and so they come into your organization. Um, the government will basically kind of allow you to spend uh, the money that's locked up in the wallet, and they will also match 50% of however much you are spending. Um, they will help you connect with this training provider that will be taking up half of the week. And then the other half of the week, the student is actually learning in 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 the organization. So um, it's a really interesting apprenticeship uh, scheme that is now starting to kind of get noticed outside of the UK. And I think a lot of countries are going to take up on, on, on this idea. Uh, this, this is not new. This has been uh, done for, for ages. Um, you can look at um, impact bonds that have been sort of happening in different um, local environments. You can look at uh, kind of outcome-based financing for schools. Um, the Dell Foundation is, is kind of a leader in this uh, space in, in, in India specifically. So there's a lot of ways, I think, to to kind of bring money that is either, it's going to be spent anyways, but you might as well spend it in more efficient ways. You might as well define an outcome very clearly and say, 
whatever increases my chances of achieving this outcome uh, will get the funding. I think that's just a very important uh, transformation. It's such a dangerous game. I, I think that's a very dangerous game. I, I agree we have to measure what matters, but that sentiment gets so warped that it becomes we're going to optimize around what's easy to measure, right? And I think a lot of the, the pitfalls of, um, I'll say U.S. education, but then many other countries have followed suit, which is, okay, you want us to have impact-driven, deci- make impact-driven decisions to impact these metrics? Okay, well, then first we have to find metrics. And then, oh, what's most easy to measure? Students' short-term retention effects, right? And then it just becomes this ab- absurd dance where we're all optimizing around student short-term retention of te- effects, not even long-term retention effects, right? We, we see that uh, these retention numbers fall almost to zero, <laughs> give, it, give it a few years because of the way that we induce cramming. So I just think, yes, we should try to make these quantitative decisions on what, what actually is creating impact. But first, we need tests and measures that actually that even quantify the things that we truly care about, which is probably, if we actually ask ourselves society, it's probably the competencies like critical thinking, you know, teamwork, collaboration. Yes, content's important, but it's only part of the equation. And then layer on long-term retention of content. We need to create institutional or institutions that incentivize remembering things for a long time, right. not just until the end of the year, right? So 100%. Um, I completely agree. I just, we have to, step one of that is how do we quantify things we actually care about so we're not continuing just to pour money on this race to the bottom. Yeah, no, I, I love that you said that. I think, um, I think, a first step is sort of uh, wanting to measure something. Um, I think most of the world is not even measuring anything at all. Um, so I feel like in the in the U.S., I, I think looking at the U.S., um, you'll see that there's just actually a, a lot of resources to even think about it and like try to. So I, f- I feel like the U.S. is. Um, it's not a perfect system, but there's also, I guess, it's ahead of most of the world in uh, at least in K twelve. Uh, so I th- that's scary. That's, that's kind of scary. scary. That's kind of scary. <laughs> but when I think about this, it, I often think about it from like unlocking funding for for the rest of the world, um, which has less resources. So I think that's one trade off in a way. Like um, if using these metrics, which might be a little bit rigid, helps you unlock uh, a little bit of funding for. Um, kind of more funding for other parts of the world. I think it's an initial step. Um, I, I totally agree that it's kind of what you measure is what you're going to get kind of get at the end, right? And I think um, one of the really interesting things about Minerva, for example, is that it proposes a very different skills taxonomy, right? It's a very different way of measuring um, measuring learning, and it's not perfect, but um, I think it has has a lot of legs and. I guess I'm I'm just surprised that there's not more work being done around kind of scaling this taxonomies around perhaps social emotional learning or uh, more kind of competency based and, and there is some great work happening around that but um, I think those skills taxonomies really need to be kind of at the center of the of the measurement and kind of of the, of the funding after that um, and I also don't think that everything needs to be measured right uh, I, I also think there needs to be a lot of space for doing things that might take a really long time to to shoot, show any effects or you also need to l- listen to a lot of the uh, educators. I think it, often in, in these measurement, um, impact measurement uh, exercises, the voices of the students and the voices of the educators are left out as well. So I, I, I fully agree. I don't think it's a perfect um, system by, by any measures. Um, 
I think that's an important level of nuance for us to add to the conversation, though, which is if we figure out that we can't measure the things we deeply care about, whatever that may be, because I also am not sure if there is a perfect metric to, to measure learning. I mean, that's such a moving target. So, okay, what are we going to do instead? It's not just forget about it. It's what you're saying. Let's hold, let's interviews, let's gain empathy for their perspectives. It's not just, okay, we can only measure short-term retention of facts. So that's the only thing we're able to operationalize and measure. It's not just, okay, then that's the only thing that exists. And let's, you know, put our heads in the sand. It's no, let's do our best to try to get uh, empathy and perspective on the other facets as well, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, I'm curious how, how do you try to measure any of this at, at, at Sora? Or I, I feel like you, you've probably learned a lot more about this than, than I have in the last couple of years. I'm curious your perspective on, on this. Yeah, it's tough. I'm more of an optimist that we can eventually create meaningful metrics. It requires us to rethink how school works from the ground up, which we are pretty far along that journey, but competency-based assessment, having students demonstrate their their mastery cumulative low stakes instead of this top-down uh, punitive style of assessment we do now, that is requisite for this conversation to, to even begin. But there are things that we can do, like in Sora, we don't have a perfect metric for for everything so we do things like we have what we call ability scores and quality level demonstrations so we can tell a student in a formative way kind of a one point um, rubric style this is what needs improvement this is this is where i think you should go and it's it's qualitative at the end of the day we're not doing these to have something like a critical thinking or open-minded discussion demonstration we don't have this super intense rubric because how would you actually break that down in any level of granularity it's instead here's from my observations of your participation here's where i think you could improve and i roughly peg you on this scale right so it's a starting point for conversation formative and I'm not sure if we're ever going to be able to create a test to see if a student has critical thinking, but that is much better than ignoring it. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, a big part of that transformation is the instruments that you use to measure things, right? So I think um, exams to me are, yeah, they're they're tough. Uh, I come from a country where there's a lot of uh, there's a huge uh, presence of standardized testing at all levels of society, um, and I've really struggled with it. I, I can see how it scales really well, um, and it's it's very easy to to scale. But I, I struggle with it because I feel like um, when a student is making a choice about what they want to learn and what they're interested in, like if they want to get to a certain outcome, they know if they if the input is a lot of hours into preparing for this exam the outcome is roughly going to scale with how many hours they cram um, if you're doing things such as um, having peers evaluate each other's critical thinking if you are trying to evaluate somebody uh, somebody's critical thinking in a conversation or in a in a real life project uh, that doesn't scale as well right like uh, if, if you do 10 hours of cramming uh, if you do 10 extra hours of, mar of of cramming the marginal benefit on on your score is, is going to be pretty good um, if you do 10 hours of, of preparing for a conversation I'm not sure that you're going to be that much better off uh, prepared for the conversation right um, so it, it sort of de-incentivizes you from that sort of cramming uh, of like kind of studying for the test right um, I think you're exactly right and this is why our approach to standardized testing as a society is pretty crazy it's kind of silly because you're measuring one moment in time a couple hours max and you're measuring their short-term retention on a pre-selected 
um, scope of, of subjects, right? And that is not at all like how life works, for one. But also, that's not even what we care about. We like what you're saying. We care about your ability to demonstrate increasing improvement or mastery on these things over a longer time horizon. So that's why at Sora we say we don't have tests. And the parents go, what the heck? What do you mean you don't have tests? We go, no, not because we're some weird shoes off hippies and we don't think that measuring things is important, but because when you have this approach that every time a student demonstrates their learning, that we're measuring and giving feedback at that point, you no longer need tests because we now have data points of every single thing a student has done. We're building up this, this map of what they know and what they need to improve to the point we're having one more uh, multiple choice assessment, whatever schools do, is simply not helpful to us. Yeah. Right. We've evolved past that almost. <laughs> I think it's also one of the opportunities um, of learning online. Like you have a lot more, uh, you're able to connect those data points to assessment, for example, right? Like we could, um, if this were a, um, a project, a final project um, of my communications class you could go back and you were my my professor or whatever um um or my teacher you could go back to my presentation and point out precisely where i could have done things differently or you might uh kind of be be able to nudge me um after the fact because you have all this really rich data uh which i think it would be really hard in a a physical in a physical school and i I have one last question uh for you which is how do you think about peer learning in this context because i'm i'm assuming a lot of the the students that are going through um this experience they um they're thinking a lot about the, the skills that they're learning and um they, they, they have a great understanding of why it's important and what it, what success looks like if you're kind of putting out a, uh, some sort of clear rubric. Um, I always felt like it was weird that at Minerva, we, we didn't have a chance to kind of grade each other uh, more uh, because like we had a very clear rubric of what success looked like. Um, so I'm curious if that's something that plays a role in that sort of school. Yeah, I think peer, peer-to-peer learning, peer-to-peer grading, whatever whatever aspect of peer-to-peer you want to focus in on, I think that is the pinnacle of education reform, of the future of education. But to get there, there are a lot of stepping stones we have to get right. I don't think having... Well, I think having your... You know, your desk mate grade your paper as a data point for teachers to reflect upon, like some schools, traditional schools do. I do think this is better, but this is just, that's not peer to peer in my mind. Peer to peer is when we understand exactly or have a good idea of what students know, where they're on in their progression of mastery, and we can connect humans with each other, hopefully also knowing their social graph, if you will, how, who they know, right, which relationships are existing, and connect people with each other to both help them improve the quality of their output to, to improve their learning, but then also to give them or give teachers or give the institution these data points so that that is not just a one-time assessment a teacher does, but it's instead a part of the learning process, right? A part of this revision pro- heavy process that I think every education institution should move towards this revisions instead of one-time assessment, right? So I think peer-to-peer learning is absolutely essential to this, but what I mean by peer-to-peer is usually a little different than what most educators in conferences are, mean when they talk about it. <laughs> Alberto, I know we have to run now, but I'm sure we could riff on this for quite a long time. We'll have to schedule another one, I suppose. But thank you so much for being on the show. Is there any parting thoughts you'd like to leave the audience, ways that if they want to follow your work, Transcend Network, whatever, they can engage with you? Yeah, let's definitely do a part two. Um, I... 
Yep. Uh, people can, if they found any of the stuff I said interesting, they can follow me on Twitter um, at Alberto Arenaza, which is my, my last name um, on Twitter. And I'm no expert in any of these things. So I would welcome everybody's thoughts and, and feedback. I'm always trying to, to get better. So um, thank you, Gerard. This is, this is great. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sora's Learning Labs. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.